It was just parties. These were all parties, you know, with the firemen's hats and all of the things that the guys were doing. I don't think anybody was taking anything serious. There were so many aspects of the Smile album and the elements and, and all the things that made up the record that he just, uh, he had to, to just let it go because it came at a time when Brian was just really finding it difficult to stay focused. He wasn't getting any enjoyment out of it. It wasn't fulfilling him, it was painful, so uh, we made Smiley smile instead. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Sail On Podcast. This is Wyatt in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm still here, moving and a-grooving. I hope wherever you're listening... You are safe and well. A really big show today for our 50th episode. We're going to chat with George Faulkner about his new Murray Wilson album, which I'm really excited for. Of course, we are continuing our dissection and discussion of the Smile Sessions. Some appropriately spooky sounds today. But first, there's an important day coming up next week. And I don't mean my birthday. Here's America's Band with an important message. Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. One of the few ways it's possible to change things around in this world is through the vote. Well, we've got the vote now for everyone over 18 or 18. Put the power of your vote in your hip pocket. Please register to vote now. This is Carl Wilson of the Beach Boys. Everywhere we've been going lately, we've been talking a little bit about power. Power each of us, 18 or older, now has to try and get things on the right track in this country. Please put the power of the vote in your hip pocket. It's easy to do. Just register to vote. This is Mike Love of the Beach Boys. If you've ever known someone who felt he was getting ripped off at the hands of the Libran Lady of Justice, think about this. The only way most states choose jurors for court trials is from the lists of registered voters. So put some power in your hip pocket. Please register to vote. This is Alan Jardine of the Beach Boys. All of us who are trying to get things changed in America should realize that the right guys are never going to win if there's no one out here to put them in. I want to urge you to put the power of the vote in your hip pocket. Please register to vote. Murray Wilson is best known for his abusive relationship with his sons, Brian, Dennis, and Carl, but he was also an accomplished songwriter in his own right. There's strong evidence that he penned over 50 tunes in his adult life. Maybe half of them were ever recorded. Some exist only in written form, and some were lost seemingly forever. That's where our guest today comes in. His new record, George Faulkner Sings Murray Wilson, features 11 songs, some which have never been recorded until now. Thanks for joining us, George. How you doing? I'm great, Wyatt. How you doing? I'm pretty good. Um, I know that's a loaded question <laughs> with everything we got going on. Um, but but yeah, first off, what was the chain of events that led you to this point? It's kind of shocking and scary to think about, Wyatt, because uh, I, I gave up on this thing at least two or three times over the years because I just was hitting dead ends everywhere I went. But it all started with um, LA DJ, um, from, uh, Luxuria radio, David Ponak. 
he gifted me some Murray sheet music to two step sidestep decades ago. And all I knew about with Murray was um, the many moods album. And I saw lyrics and I thought, wait a minute, he wrote vocal song <laughs> compositions. Like they, this guy was a lyricist too. And I immediately was like, okay, I got to find out more about this. And this is like pre-internet, pre-historical reference books. You know, there was just, there was little information out there about Murray specifically. And um, it just became this like decades long obsession that would come and go. And so the, you know, the, the first big wave, I think, uh, was letter writing to publishers and to people who had worked with Murray led to a bunch of nothing. And then the second wave was early internet kind of research and hitting up insiders that led to nothing. And then uh, I just a few years ago recorded two step. Uh, it was a birthday gift from my wife. She get, bought me some studio time. Nice. Yeah. And then that was it. I was in and um, the rest is history. It was just, it was a ton of internet research and a ton of emailing. And really, if I were to condense it all down, I'd say it was, you know, a good like hardcore six months of, of work to, to gather what little I did. So why Murray Wilson? Well, you know, I mean, it started because I thought he was sort of a comical character in the grand mm. scheme of things. And then by the end of the entire project, I had flip-flopped into having all kinds of respect yeah. for him and what he accomplished. I mean, if you read the Jim Murphy blurb on the murraywilson.com page, you know, this is a guy who did a lot for his kids and for the cause. And I am now like a firm believer that the beach boys wouldn't have existed without Murray. And so I kind of came full, you know, I did the full arc from, you know, giggly fanboy pointing fingers to like, Oh my God, you know, this guy actually like devoted his entire life to music and to his children. I remember at one point in the research reading those famous letters that Murray wrote to Brian and Dennis. Yep. Reading them, I just I I decided that this guy was not only uh dedicated to their success, but he also was like he he gave pretty good advice and um if you kind of read between the lines of him just being sort of an abusive nasty guy, he really is giving them good advice. And so, you know, I'm not like this project isn't some kind of attempt to uh, justify Murray's methods in any way. Um, but I do think like in hindsight, I'm really glad I did it because at least now people might think twice about kind of the level of devotion to music that was in that household as the kids were growing up, you know, they didn't necessarily find this all on their own. You know, Brian definitely embraced something that was happening in, in the house driven by his parents and became sort of academically, you know, focused on it 
on his own, you know, like that was to his credit. But I think the trigger was, you know, the triggers were Murray and Audrey and, and the people they surrounded themselves with and the instruments they brought into the house and the wall and sack tape recorder they bought and all these things, they all added up to all of the joy that we now get to experience through decades of albums and recordings. This is a perfect way to kind of, you know, not like exonerate Murray, but yeah, like you were saying, to kind of show everyone that there's a lot there that people may not have known about. Um, there's a lot of talent there. There's some great songs. And uh, it's it's clear to me, listening to some of these songs, that there's some definite rub off on Brian um, and his melody writing. Uh, and just, you know, he always said that his dad wrote pretty music, beautiful music. So it's really cool to hear this stuff. Um, one that stuck out to me was So Much In Love. I think that might be my favorite track on there. And just, you know, doing a little bit of research, that was one of the last songs that he wrote. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there is uh, a tape in the archives, and it slipped out um, years ago somehow, and I ran across a bootleg of it that has Murray doing a spoken word intro. He's basically saying like, hey guys, it's dad. Would love it if you would consider recording one of these new songs I wrote. Um, uh, and then he kind of hints that he might be dying, which interestingly enough, he did um, soon thereafter. Uh, and they of course never recorded them. And Alan Boyd found it in the archives the the tapes, everything that references Murray that's in the archives is um, very, very lightly tagged. There's very little information connected to the songs. So really the only reason why So Much In Love is listed as a song Murray wrote is because he said it on tape. And that's one of the songs that Lewis and Kitty Durham uh, produced in London for the for the album, and I think they did a tremendous job. Um, just the two of them alone in their studio, um, just bang that thing out, and it came out great. And this, I got this young vocalist Mark Ambor to do background vocals, and he did a tremendous job on that. Um, so I'm I'm really happy with how that one turned out, and that's one that that the you know, college radio stations and indie radio guys seem to be latching onto right now. Oh, cool. I was so all alone Just a face in a lonely world Needing love that I hungered for I found your love Like a dream from above Destiny made the way for And there's one that I really wanted to get my hands on called Take Back the Time, which was the absolutely last song Murray wrote uh, according to Library of Congress documents, right? So 
He copywrote it twice, once in 1972 and once in February of 73. He must have updated the song. And Boyd, Alan Boyd, <laughs> wrote back to me and he was like, yeah, you don't want this. He said, I, I, as far as I can tell, this is a television commercial jingle for an insurance company. And I said, oh, no, 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 you, you underestimate my level of interest. I was like, I absolutely want that song, uh, but I couldn't wrestle it out of the archives' hands. <laughs> well, that, that brings me to another question. Are we going to hear you take on the uh, KFC jingle? Yeah, no, that's, uh, that, <laughs> I mean, come on, Wyatt, that, that recording is so perfect. Why would anyone ever try to recreate yeah, you're right. that? It is I know. perfect. As it is, I know, and I I appreciate that you. Uh, if 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 I haven't said it already, that you um are kind of you are taking on the role of Murray Wilson. You sing the lead vocal uh, on the record, and uh, obviously by the title. But um, I like I'm glad that you're not doing an impersonation of Murray necessarily. Right. Um, it's it sounds better than I imagine Murray Wilson <laughs> would have sounded. Yeah. So um. Well, I know that's not saying a whole lot, but it sounds great. I'll say this for the first time anywhere, um, although maybe I mentioned it the last time you interviewed me when we did the the Christmas single yeah. interview, but mm -hmm. on uh, Murray makes an appearance on every track. Yeah, every, yeah. Yeah, every song. <laughs> so on Two Step, he's singing background vocals, sampled from the... Yeah, sampled from the Help Me Rhonda sessions when he's trying to teach Al Jardine how to sing better. <laughs> no, I love the little Easter eggs in there. I, I, I hear that when I listen to it, and I've only had the record for a couple days, but um, I love it. Going to the cover of the record, it's got a, a, a humorous vibe to it because of those little bits, um, which I think is important. And I think the cover represents that as well because you got the the illustrator that did the Murray Wilson show cartoon. Yep. Um, a lot of people may may know Peter Bag. Yeah, Peter to me is like a really you know he's been a really important part of this entire process. And oh, great. I've, you know, I have not told him what to do. I have given him no direction and he just keeps coming up with great covers one after another. And this LP cover, I love it. I think he did a fantastic job. Yeah, I love it. I love the presentation of the record. I think people have really responded well to it. You told me that there may be only a hundred copies left right now of the LP. So you guys should jump on that while you can. Are there plans to maybe repress or could we see a digital release in the future? I am not planning on repressing the vinyl. And, you know, there are a couple of small labels that I've talked to about the possibility of them putting it out digitally, but no one, no one has taken a bite into that yet. And I couldn't predict what'll happen. I do have, sure. I, I do have the entire album, uh, as backing tracks too. So a digital release, you know, if some label wants to pick it up, um, could be really fun and really cool. Cause you could get, you know, uh, George Faulkner doesn't sing Murray Wilson and then you could just sing along yourself and have your <laughs> little, little stack yeah. of tracks. Yeah. You just, as long as you syncopate it, um, <laughs> yeah, right. I'm so glad people are liking it and picking it up. 
I think it's really special. So, and a huge thank you to the Salon listeners. It's like your your listeners just got that first couple of days gobbled up a ton of copies. Shout out to the sailors. I feel vindicated. <laughs> I gotta say, I was I was really concerned. I I was because for years I was like, this is the greatest idea. And I'm going to yeah. keep it quiet. I'm not going to tell people I'm doing it, yeah. but it's, it seems to have worked out and I couldn't be happier. Another one that I wanted to touch on is called Tabber Inn. And I had never heard this before, but you sent me a recording of it from the fifties and I thought it was great. Reminded me kind of of the ink spots, that vibe. And um, you uh, asked me to do backing vocals on it. So that was super fun. Yes, and you gave me kind of an empty canvas to work with and it was just really cool to be part of so thank you very much for that and yeah, uh, man. i'm stoked with how it came out it has kind of a throwback vibe to it kind of a slap back you know 50s echo on it i really really enjoyed it even now i hear the lovely voice as i pleaded for That's Murray's sort of second biggest hit in in terms of, you know, on written paper and based on things that have come out. And it's a great song. And you did a fantastic job. And, you know, to go to go back to your um, comment about the blank canvas, you know, um, I feel it's this it's I did with you the same thing I did with Peter Bag. It's like, I don't want to tell people what to do. I want them to do I, I my whole philosophy in the creative world even outside of making music is if you hire the right person um let them be themselves and you're going to wind up with something much better than if you know than if you try to control and shape and mold the, the artist and I I believe that and will believe that till my dying day But yeah I mean Murray Wilson has always been kind of looked at as one of the villains in the Beach Boys saga, you know, just a not a very good dad. Um, he really was a thorn in the side of Brian for a while, and they fired him, and then he sold the publishing, and you know, split up with Audrey, and the last few years of his life were were very tragic to me, and I've always been very sad about that. It is it is purely tragic, but you know, you touched on the. Um the sale of the publishing and I don't have the quote in front of me, but there was a really interesting post a couple of months ago from Bill Inglot who talked about how he feels that the publishing sale is one of the, you know, greatest misconceptions uh, in regard to the beach boys and their history. And he makes a really interesting argument that that sale actually set the beach boys up 
to move from being managed by one guy with a rotary phone to a global publishing powerhouse who could look over this music, manage this music, get it into, you know, television and radio and film and, and, and do right by it. Um, so hunt that down, uh, listeners. I, I never heard it stated like that. And it was, it was really interesting. I wanted to also bring up, since you were talking about the band, uh, the back of the LP has a nice blurb from none other than David Marks. It says at the top, just when you thought 2020 couldn't get any stranger, along comes David, I hate you, Murray Marks, to praise the genius of Murray Wilson. David's a great guy. He references it in the in the blurb, but I mean, this is a guy who, when he left the Beach Boys, he kept going, you know, and he started making some really cool stuff for a few years, like the Marksman and Moon. There's some really, really cool stuff going on oh, in yeah. those in those recordings. So, you know, it's like he he tips his hat to Murray a little bit um for, you know, helping with the marksman and giving him a couple of gigs with the Sunrays. I mean, you know, it's like there, I've got a Bruce Johnston blurb on the on the MurrayWilson.com page too, where Bruce just says, "Look, you know, he was irritating and abrasive, but that's exactly what we needed in a manager in the early days." And yeah. you know, I think that's kind of summarizes what Marx is saying uh, in the liner notes as well. It's like he wasn't a perfect guy, but man, he got th- he got things done. Yeah, I think a lot of our listeners know um, Murray's instrumental record, uh, The Many Moods of Murray Wilson, which I really enjoy. Um, I especially like Islands in the Sky. But there is a tie-in um, on your record um, to the track Leaves. Yeah. Correct? Yeah, which kind of caught me off guard. So, you know, during my research... Um, I hunted down a track called Young Love is Everywhere, which is, I, I mean, just for me, it's my favorite track on the, on the new album. But um, this is something that um, after, <laughs> I, I'm embarrassed to admit, but, you know, after I recorded it and had been sort of consumed by it, um, as you are when you record uh songs and recording studios with a band of people. They work their way into your brain uh, a little deeper than you would imagine. And I was cooking dinner one night, listening to Many Moods and realized that it's it's the same song as Leaves. Um, Murray must have taken Young Love is Everywhere and decided for Many Moods to turn it into an instrumental. I don't know why he changed the name, um, but it's uh, it's from an album that was put out by the John Buzon Trio. Uh, and um, again, like, it's 
you know, um, there's not a huge paper trail around this song, but um, but on that same John Buzan Trio album is uh, um, another Murray track, another an, an instrumental actually. I forget which one it is, but anyway, Young Love Is Everywhere is Leaves. Leaves is Young Love Is Everywhere. Great song, and maybe one of the better songs Murray wrote, if you ask me. You'll find that it's the same whether here or there For love will blossom bright, be it by day or night And start another young love affair Well, it's a great record. Thank you so much, George, for putting in all the work. And um, you guys should check it out while you still can. There's a link in the show notes. I think it's going to be a collector's piece for a lot of people. Uh, I know it is for me. I think everyone will enjoy it. And um, I really appreciate you coming on and taking the time to give us a little backstory and a little insight, George. Thanks, Wyatt. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate um, the sale on followers. And, you know, this thing has been a lot of fun to do. It's driven me nuts, but, uh, it's out there, pick it up. And, you know, I, I really appreciate the attention. Of course. Thanks a lot, man. We'll talk to you again. I hope. All right. Thanks, Wyatt. You can hear a lot more of George in a full hour-long interview over on the Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash sale on. For as low as five bucks a month, you gain access to dozens of bonus episodes, and it's a great way to keep this podcast advertisement-free. And honestly, without our patrons, I probably wouldn't be still doing this. So thank you guys. It really means a lot. Shout out to our newest members, Olive D, Tony Goddess, Alex Blackner, Benny Montero and Beatles Yoshi 999. <laughs> Thank you so much, you guys. Currently, we are three patrons away from our 100 goal, and that means Surf and Earth will be a reality very soon. Stay tuned. We love you. I don't know if that's the right sound for this. I guess I just. I'm gonna make an adjustment. Let's backtrack a bit to April of 1966. The Beach Boys traveled to the mountains around Lake Arrowhead to shoot a promo for the recently completed Pet Sounds with new publicist Derek Taylor. They wore creepy masks and danced around and played cards in the wilderness. The Good Humor Smile website suggests that it's during this trip Brian took LSD for the third and final time. Described in his 1991 autobiography, and I use that term very loosely, Everything it was supposed to be. Four hours of enlightenment and spirituality. If Brian's second LSD trip in late 1965 became the catalyst for Pet Sounds, this experience very well could have been the genesis of Smile. Whatever the case, Brian began to grow closer to nature, and by May, he was playing arrangements of Al Hibbler's trees to people at his house and planning to record the song with the Beach Boys. 
David Anderley said, Brian was really into the elements. He ran up to Big Sur for a week, just because he wanted to get into that. Up to the mountains, into the snow, down to the beach, out to the pool, out at night, running around to water fountains, to a lot of water, the sky, the whole thing was this fantastic amount of awareness of his surroundings. He made us aware of what fire was going to be and what water was going to be. We had some idea of air. None of us had any ideas as to how it was going to tie together, except that it appeared to us to be an opera. And the story of fire, I guess, is pretty well known by now. Maybe Anderley is thinking of the Lake Arrowhead adventure, but if Brian went to Big Sur, it would have been around July of 1966, which is also the month he started writing and planning the Dumb Angel album. We know what happens next. Brian records a few new songs, reboots Good Vibrations, strikes up a collaboration with Van Dyke Parks, Dumb Angel becomes Smile. They didn't address it immediately, but Brian's Big Sur experience eventually manifested itself in the vague idea to write something to promote environmental awareness and natural, healthy living, titled The Elements. Let's bring in the crew, Will, Crera, and John Brody. Welcome back, guys. Hey, how's it going? It's going okay. So, John, how are we uh, getting from this concept of the elements into this vegetables session? At this stage, basically, the elements, we think, was just kind of the name for vegetables. Because there's a uh, Frank Holmes piece of artwork that has uh, my vegetables or my vegetables as a lyric from a song called The Elements. So that early demo of vegetables as it's as it's called on the box set, uh, we think that's kind of what he had in mind just as the song at the stage. I don't, I don't know if, if they had kind of a solid concept of what the elements was going to be. They had, you know, they wanted to do something on the, on the album that was called The Elements and it would be about, you know, natural living and be about the environment and all that stuff because Brian was worried about smog and all this sort of thing. And vegetables kind of, the way it's, it's, fra- it's framed is like, it's as if vegetables at this point is is the elements, but the um, the artwork that Frank Holmes did, the way he did his drawing for this is quite different to the other songs. He got lyrics for um, Heroes and Villains, Surf's Up, Do You Like Worms, and Cabin Essence, because they were the first four songs that Brian and Van wrote together. But with the elements, he didn't um, get a lyric sheet. He kind of just had a conversation over the phone with Van Dyke about the concept that they were trying to get across. You know, it was about healthy living and natural food and all that sort of thing. So in his, in his drawing, Frank represented a few different things. It was kind of water and, and I guess, vegetables, you know. <laughs> the, 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 the two things he depicts in his drawing. So, And the, because it's so short, I don't know if it would have been the full track or what, but it's kind of like veg, vegetables wasn't really its own song at this point. It was just a part of the elements and whether that was the entire thing or just a segment of it, I guess probably a segment. Um, but it was quite different to what Brian turned it into a while later, which was an instrumental thing in four parts. Right, and it probably it wasn't finished at any point in time, but it, no. I don't think it was finished at this early stage either because that Vegetables demo, which we don't think really is a demo, so like it's just a proper studio recording with a very simple backing track, but that's less than like a minute and a half long. So... We don't really know what he had planned, if it was going to be like a full vegetable song or what else it would have entailed, but the fire thing hasn't really come into play yet. That's really not something that he's come up with. Yeah, and that track as well, it's 
it's cut down on the box set quite a bit, but the original recording, I mean, you can even hear on the box set where Brian just keeps playing piano and it trails off after the vocals end. That was cut down for the official release. Like the unedited track goes on for like ages. It's, it's, I think it's almost two minutes long. It's Brian just keeps playing and the vocals stop. So I don't know if he'd even, I don't think he'd even finished the song at this point. One, two, one, two, three. I'm gonna be round my vegetables. I'm gonna chow down my vegetables. I like you most of all. My favorite vegetable. Dig a hole in the ground. <laughs> if you brought a big brown bag of them home, I'd jump up and down and hope you'd toss me. So this session, um, we think that it was on October 17th at Columbia, right? Probably. I mean, that's the most likely date for it, but there's no um, there's no session date for it. We've just got this this unmarked tape, and it was done definitely in some time, either in October or December, when the other Beach Boys were around, and before 1967. And you'd guess October because of the way they talk about you know doing that promo thing in November. And there's this mystery session for um, this just titled I'm in Great Shape at Columbia on October 17th. That might be it. It's just a it's just the best guess that anybody has because the title is kind of a loose thing about you know healthiness, and then there's the whole vague loose elements connection thing with uh, you know I want to be around in that, which is titles I'm in Great Shape on the AFM contract partially and. Yeah, so it's it's there's a loose a loose connection that makes, you know, it's it's the best guess anybody has for when this was done. So nonetheless, it's um, probably mislabeled as a demo because it, it is such an early version of this track that we don't really see come up in sessions for a while. Yeah, it's very sparse. Brian on piano, and then um, the rest of the group on vocals as well. So Mike and Brian sharing the lead vocal. And then um, all the Beach Boys, plus Marilyn, Diane, Barbara, and Ralph Valentin, the engineer, on the laugh track, as we'll, as we'll call it. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, the general idea of the song is already here. The backing vocals are, are pretty fleshed out. I mean, it seems like he put a lot of work into it, so I don't yeah, think it's this, a demo, like you guys said. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a very... They put some like automatic double tracking on um, the official release to put it in stereo, but... The vocals are very sparse, kind of single tracked, but the, the, you know it's a full fleshed out harmony arrangement. You know, there's those um, right. those kind of response parts at the end of each verse that were flown in for the um, the the you know the, the vinyl single that came with the the box set. They use that part, which is it's it's a it's a yeah. really strange, you know, it's it's almost like talk singing, but it's a, it's like a very close three part harmony with Brian Allen, Carl, and then these backing vocals are. Uh, like they're laughing yeah. in tune and it's really weird um it's really hard to do too because they're like humming kind yeah, of yeah very hard but very precise humming and there's another one yeah and there's another one later on um you know the final single version that's the thing um the final you know the, the version of vegetables that everyone associates with smile wasn't really it was kind of in this you know period where smile was kind of almost over really but smiley smile hadn't yet begun it was kind of in this intermediate period where it was going to be for an album called Smile, but Smile as it was originally conceived was pretty much, you know, dead. 
Um, so this was conceived as a single that would have gone on the next Beach Boys album called Smile. But the version of um, Vegetables during the whole main Smile period was this one that gets called the demo. But it's it's really straight. It's like it's kind of like the unbugged at my old man of Smile at this point. Um, <laughs> that's the comparison, always, man. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, Mike and Brian's lead is is really weird too. Yeah, and Mike gets off a little bit <laughs> at one point. Um, it, it sounds like he's singing like a parody yeah, of Mike Love. Yeah. Same with Brian. <laughs> like they like they know not to take it too seriously with the with their lead on that. And you can tell it's definitely like a throwaway comedy song at this point. It's not the big production that it can, um, turned into later. We've talked about how a lot of the a lot of the main parts of, of Smile are really simple in their purest form, just like two chords. And uh, again here, basically, it's just two chords until it shifts up a, a, a step and then another basic two chord pattern um, for the turnaround. But yeah, it's super simple. Yeah, one of the Smile people, I can't remember who it was, maybe it was Michael Vossi or David Andale, um, said that the way they did it on Smiley Smile is obviously a different recording, but it was very similar to the way that it was originally supposed to be. And the Smiley Smile one is kind of more complicated with the different sections than this would have been. So that's something to think about. Yeah, for sure. And the lyrics as well, they were changed, I, you know, maybe because of the um, drug reference in Tripped on a Cornucopia, which is, you know, very obviously that but the whole thing about a song about vegetables and like uh you know trying to eat a candy wrapper and then <laughs> laughing at yourself when you realize what you've done it's the whole vegetable thing is also about being stoned <laughs> as much as this is about actual vegetables so yeah you know <laughs> they changed one thing but didn't get rid of the entire song is about that really as well as being about being healthy um So on the January 3rd Heroes and Villains comp tape, there was this thing called Do A Lot, which we don't think really had anything to do with Heroes and Villains, because it's, you know, it's E and A, and it's the whole lyrics about being healthy, and it ended up here, it ended up in Vegetables eventually. Um, so the idea with that is maybe it was just knocked out very quickly at a hero session to put an ending on Vegetables when it became its own song. Yeah, maybe maybe this was vegetables all along. I think so, but who knows? This is from Teen Set Magazine. Vegetables. Brian Wilson and master percussionist Hal Blaine meet eyeball to eyeball for a deadly game of pool. Blaine picks up his celery stalk, Wilson has his, and with oh-so-careful English spins the radish off the tomato for game. Guy Webster is clicking off color photos nearby. I want people to turn on to vegetables, good nature food, organic food. Health is an important ingredient in spiritual enlightenment. 
but I do not want to be pompous about this, so we will engage in a satirical approach to the matter. Brian and Van Dyke Parks, his collaborator for the Smile album, write a funky, silly, joyous little ode to Vegeta Tables. A young pop artist is commissioned to do a vegetable painting for the album, and the Wilson creative process continues. So this is kind of the beginning of, you know, this long-winded promo idea with photos and like an audio skit um, that Brian did with Hal Blaine. Why Hal Blaine? I don't know. He always thought Hal Blaine was funny. <laughs> um, so uh, it worked out pretty well. It is hilarious um, at parts, yeah, for sure. It's interesting because it seems like he always wanted heroes and villains to be the lead single up until April about, but obviously Vegetables was also a huge, important part of Smile that he wanted to advertise. He just wanted to push vegetables, you know. Not not even the song, just vegetables as a as a as a plant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like he said, he wanted other people to live healthy. Like he kind of saw him himself as someone who could get that across to a lot of people. Uh, there's even this um, advert from a, a magazine or something in late '66 that's got like a, a big bag of vegetables and a thing on it saying "Happy Holidays from the Beach Boys," which I think Dean Torrance designed. I think he's spoken somewhere that the first graphic thing he designed for for Brian was something to do with vegetables, so that might have been him, and it's just, yeah, I think, you know, people have suggested that maybe he was going to go on top of the song, and I think it was genuinely just something like the Caroline No promos that he did, um, but not even for a single, he just wanted to, he was just that into the idea of getting people to eat vegetables. Um, he decided to do this thing to tie into the song. Look, something I grew these with my own hands. I want something to eat. You've got nothing. You want to eat? Go down to a restaurant Let somewhere. Let me just have a tomato. Don't you have a house? I don't yeah. live anywhere. But I'm giving you fair warning. You're going to get a tomato all over your puss. Don't say puss. Do it again. How'd you like to get pushed over that hill? <laughs> Wait a second. Hell? You, got, you can't be... <laughs> you don't want to be mean. You want to just be... You know, you want... Yeah, he's really naturally funny. I can see why Brian liked his sense of humor a lot and got him to do this with him. Because, I mean, compared to Brian's friends, it's just... It's awful. It's really, it's really it's awful. terrible. <laughs> There's a reason that this stuff, you know, most of this stuff didn't even end up on the on the box set because it's just not funny. I mean, it's <laughs> it's uh, most of the stuff that Brian ends up doing with his friends just come across as like really cringy and self indulgent and <laughs> like you know something that you do when when you're really high and um, have studio time. I can't eat this vegetable. Why not? It's way too, it's stale. It's good for you, it's, it's good for it's you, spoiled. eat it. It's good for did you, you ever, Did you eat look it. at the it's side of that you. tomato? It's, it's spoiled, it. I don't it. want it. For you. All right, eat I'll it. eat it, but it's gonna make me sick. Good for you. But there's this bizarre dialogue that happens in the middle of this as well, where they start talking about this media shower. You know what happened tonight? What? Just about two hours ago, I was sitting on the, my bed with my dogs, you know, Banana was up here and Louie was back there. And Louie's leg, his neck was on my leg and so firm that I, I couldn't even t push his head, you know? And I wondered why he was so snug. Scared? No, I didn't. I don't know. Banana was looking straight in the same direction like, like in a train. Banana was the next car, you know? Hmm. And they were both very firm to the east. Because I remember going through west, north, and I was trying to find... I said, they're lined up. That might mean something. I just two Well, the last ago, time happened. it happened... I saw that, you know, they were they east. Thought, the like last that. time it happened, they thought the world was coming to an end. Oh. What exactly happened? And it's just, yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very, very strange. And this thing, I looked it up, and it would have happened in, like, the early hours of 
November 17th, like very early in the morning, about like five or six. And this was recorded late at night on the 16th. So at the end of the tape, they go outside to like, hey, I'll, they go, hey, I want to go see that media thing. So they go outside and if they did want to go see it and they would have been waiting for about like six hours. But, uh, you know, <laughs> it's it's just an interesting, a, a very strange little sort of psychedelic moment that gets captured on tape where Brian just freaks everyone out. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. Weird little <laughs> glimpse into Brian's weird way of talking and thinking. What he would have been like on a day to day basis. Yeah. yeah. I would rather eat a rotten tomato than a fine plum. You can't talk about fungus. We don't can't? Have, you know, this is happier than that. Sure fungus is not a dirty word. No, I don't want to do fungus. You know, let's don't do fungus. We can do another thing. I mean, we can assume that vegetables is earth from the elements. But, yeah. I, I mean, it's early. kind of a stretch. But, I mean, you know, it's more like the flora element of the sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whatever yeah i think i think next episode will just be like a big vegetables episode on like the big vegetable yeah. single yeah so yeah that leads us to brian's obsession with water yeah at some point uh brian decided that he wants to do a, like an entire album of just water recordings which probably lasted for about five minutes before he decided no this is going to be the elements or whatever but um and there's a quote from michael vossi about when he was first employed by Brian at the end of at the end of October 1966, when they went over to Michigan, and uh, yeah, he just set him up to start recording with a Nagra tape recorder and told him to go start recording water. And kind of gave him an assignment to just go record a bunch of water sounds, like including toilets and streams and water fountains, garden hoses, um, just everything. And the idea that Brian had for this was that. You know, every sound has a pitch, and if you get enough um, water recordings, that he'd be able to kind of splice them together and in, into individual notes to make a song out of it, which would be pretty much impossible. Um, but Brian, you know, he just was exploring and trying to testing out ideas. But Steve Desper, the engineer who um, started working for the Beach Boys in '67, um, he actually did something to try and make this happen. Amazingly, and this is something that links into Cool Cool Water later on were kind of inspired by this idea, I guess. Um, they had this thing called, you know, Chamberlain. It's kind of like an American Mellotron where you have tape samples. And what Steve did is he went around recording all these water sounds of the pitches that were needed. And then he used, like... The, the thing that um, was used on She's Gone Ball that was, like, a prototype for the outro thing that changes the pitch of a sound without altering the speed. And he did that to, like, alter the pitch of all these different water recordings. And then he fed the tapes into a Chamberlain so you could actually play all these notes on a on a keyboard, which sounds incredible that he actually pulled it off. And apparently Brian played with it for about five minutes and then just said, uh, whatever, and then threw it away. <laughs> and it was never used and, they, you know, they didn't use it on a record. But it's interesting where that went. In late October, Brian wrote a letter to Michael Vossi that just says, Michael, next short, water, location, big clean backyard, trees, ivy, flowers, etc., Color. Find the nicest, most able cameraman. Set up soon. I'll do soundtrack soon. Best short in a few incarnations. Cast. You, me, etc. <laughs> so what is he talking about here? He's, he's talking about shooting another promo video? <laughs> yeah, this is about when he did the good vibrations thing. So it's just interesting. <laughs> it's it, I, I love that Brian specifies the, to find a nice cameraman. That's all he was worried yeah. about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wish, again, like, these, there's so many things here that I wish that we had, like the, the chicken and tennis shoes, but 
Um, this is one of them as well. Like, what on earth was this going to be? <laughs> he says he's going to do the soundtrack. Well, yeah. Where is it? <laughs> We're still waiting. Yeah, like we mentioned, there's a whole lot of just studio tomfoolery, really. Um, Brian and his and his friends getting together and doing chants and little kind of rounds of ideas, improvising a lot. Uh, and these all kind of tie into the elements in some way. So the vegetable chants, and then the there's swimming chants, ocean chants, breathing and laughing. But uh, no fire. Because maybe you already have music. Maybe. But they all kind of sound the elements in some way. Okay, over here they are. Okay, that's cool. Let him go second. We got them. Where's my beat and my carrot? 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 Again from Teen Set Magazine. Brian and four friends sit in the darkened studio around an open microphone. Each person makes and repeats a sound which represents the feeling of underwater life to him. Brian softly whispers into ears, asking for a variation here, a more pronounced rhythm there. Soon the effect is created, and Brian returns to the booth to mix the sounds with echoes and pitch changes to create a vocal Atlantis. But what's interesting is the end of that teen set anecdote this is a quote from Brian where he says, this is interesting. We'll try something with um, the boys when they get back from, from tour. Um, so this is something he wanted to record with the Beach Boys, like a version of it anyway. This underwater chanting right. thing, which some people think it kind of evolved into the um, cool, cool water, you know, that drone chant thing. And it's very different to just saying the names of fish. But, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a similar sort of... It's basically just a bunch of really kind of dumb, unmusical ideas that they're just doing for fun as well but also just so he can think back when he was doing stuff in the studio um, with the musicians and with the Beach Boys but I think if the Beach Boys were doing it it wouldn't be as cringy but I just <laughs> I just like Michael Vossi and Van Dyke Parks have like the worst voices for this type of thing so <laughs> for sure it's just hard to listen to sometimes the Beach Boys are also way more naturally funny and just have better, like, chemistry with each other, you know? This is an excerpt from Goodbye Surfing, Hello God by Jules Siegel. It was just another day of greatness at Gold Star Recording Studios in Hollywood. A genius with a very large capital G was going to produce a hit. There was no doubt it would be a hit because this genius was Brian Wilson. In four years of recording for Capitol Records, he and his group, the Beach Boys, had made surfing music a national craze, sold 16 million singles, and earned gold records for 10 of their 12 albums. Until now, though, there were not too many hip people who would have considered Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys hip, even though he had produced one very hip record, Good Vibrations, which has sold more than a million copies, and a super hip album, Pet Sounds, which didn't do very well at all by previous Beach Boys standards. Among the hip people, he was still on trial, and the question discussed earnestly amongst the recognized authorities on what is and what is not hip was whether or not Brian Wilson was hip, semi-hip, or square. But walking into the control room with the answers to all the questions such as this was Brian Wilson himself. 
wearing a competition-striped surfer's t-shirt, tight white duck pants, pale green bowling shoes, and a red plastic fireman helmet. Everybody was wearing identical red plastic toy fireman helmets. Brian's cousin and production assistant Steve Korthoff was wearing one. His wife Marilyn and her sister Diane Ravel, Brian's secretary, were also wearing them. And so was a once-dignified writer from the Saturday Evening Post, who had been following Brian around for two months. Out in the studio, the musicians for the session were unpacking their instruments. In sports shirts and slacks, they looked like insurance salesmen and used car dealers. Controlled, a little bored after 20 years or so of nicely paid anonymity, these were the professionals of popular music. Hired guns who did their jobs expertly and efficiently, and then went home to the suburbs. If you wanted swing, they gave you swing. A little movie track lushness? Fine. Here comes movie track lushness. Now it's rock and roll. Perfect rock and roll. Down the chute. Steve, Brian called out. Where are the rest of those fire hats? I want everybody to wear fire hats. We've got to get really into this thing. Out to the Rolls Royce went Steve, and within a few minutes, all of the musicians were wearing fire hats. Silly grins beginning to crack their professional dignity. All right, let's go, said Brian. Then, using a variety of techniques ranging from vocal demonstration to actually playing the instruments, he taught each musician his part. Okay, the elements, uh, part one, fire, take one. gigantic fire howled out of the massive studio speakers in a pounding crash of pictorial music that summoned up visions of roaring windstorm flames, falling timbers, mournful sirens, and sweating firemen building into a peak and crackling off into fading embers as a single drum turned into a collapsing wall and then the fire engine cellos dissolved and disappeared. When did he write this? asked an astonished pop music producer who had wandered into the studio. This is really fantastic. Man, this is unbelievable. How long has he been working on it? About an hour, answered one of Brian's friends. I don't believe it. I just can't believe what I'm hearing, said the producer, and fell into a stone-glazed silence as the fire music began again. For the next three hours, Brian Wilson recorded and re-recorded take after take, changing the sound balance, adding echo, experimenting with sound effects of a real fire. Yeah, you gotta take it easy on that. Let's do it again, all right? Make sure you accentuate that note exactly like we went through. Can I hear the bass run one time? With 23 takes right. on tape, the entire operation responding to his touch like the black knobs on the control board, sweat glistening down his long reddish hair onto his freckled face, the control room a litter of dead cigarette butts, chicken delight boxes, crumpled napkins, Coke bottles, and all the accumulated trash of the physical end of the creative process, Brian stood at the board as the four speakers blasted the music into the room. For the 24th time, the drum crashed and the sound effects crackled and faded and stopped. Feet shifting, his body still, eyes closed, head moving seal-like to his music. He stood under the speakers and listened. Let me hear that one more time. Again, the fire roared. Everybody come in and listen to this, Brian said to the musicians. They came out into the room and listened to what they had made. What do you think? It's incredible, incredible, whispered one of the musicians, a man in his 50s wearing a Hawaiian shirt and iridescent trousers and black Italian shoes. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, said Brian on the way home, an acetate trial copy or dub of the tape in his hands, the red plastic fire helmet still on his head. 
Yeah, I'm gonna call this Mrs. O'Leary's fire. I think it might just scare a whole lot of people. Fire was a little bit bizarre for me to, to go through. It was a little bit of a bizarre sound, but we did it. It's very different off-the-wall music, so it's not your, you know, it's not like uh, Surfer Girl or, or, you know, Be True to Your School. I was feeling unhappy, so I thought that fire tape would express the crazy, weird thoughts I was going through. He had me go out and buy fire hats <laughs> for everybody. That's I mean, and here we had a whole studio of musicians. Everyone had fire hats on. Brian had a fire hat, the engineer. Really turned out really good because it gets everyone in the spirit of what he's doing. Yeah, like everyone has to be, you know, like feel the mood. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he the musicians always love working with him. So at Gold Star Studio A on Monday, November 28th, 1966, we've got the crew back in the house again. So you got Bill Pittman, Lyle Ritz, and Carol Kay playing bass, which we'll get into in a minute. Jim Gordon on drums, Gene Estes on percussion, a whole group of flutes and strings, uh, and then a large group of onlookers here as uh, we record Fire. At this point, the elements is now something completely different from what it originally was. Uh, vegetables is it, you know, what it was before is now its own song, just called Vegetables. And this is called on the tape, part one, fire. So this would have been the opening of the song of this, you know, four-part suite, I guess, maybe instrumental suite. The master take that was put together is like, it's like a, about a, a minute and a half long or so. So yeah, this is, this is just one part of a bigger thing that ultimately didn't get finished. Let's do it again now. Each, uh, each one of the bases has to have little identities, has to come out. Start with Maya, I think that's what we did, right? Then we did Carol, and then Billy. In this case, I think it's better to do Maya, Billy, and then Carol, because she's the deepest thing, right? Okay. All right, the first thing out then is Gene, then it's Lyle, then it's Billy, then Carol. Let's do it again, in tempo. Thank you, love. Okay, so I thought the most interesting thing to talk about with Fire would just be, what is this sound? How does he write this? Um... <laughs> Because it's something that mystified me for ages. You know, you listen to this and it's... Yeah, me too. Just, it seems like impenetrable what's going on here. But It's overwhelming. We, we, we got it. We figured it out. Because <laughs> I was listening and I thought, hang on a second, the flutes, that's just Brian's right hand on the piano. And then I got you to like figure out what notes they are. Um, so the chord, Brian wrote this at a piano with chords. You know, he wrote, <laughs> it was a piece of thing. It was something that he wrote. It's not like just an improvisation. And the chords are basically, it's like an F sharp major seven with the sharp fifth and then the major seven on the bottom so it sounds very discordant and strange and then the second chord is literally every note just goes down a half a step so yeah and that's what all the flutes are doing the, the flutes are just brian's right hand on the piano and the way we would have written it is yeah and, and being, the, the yeah. way they're playing it is just one note held out so when they all come in together it's like a a train whistle you know except it's like a train yeah. whistle from hell flutes only please So there's three different bass parts here. Um, Smilebox has has it as uh, Bill Pittman on a uh, fuzzed out bass and Carol Kay on electric and Lyle on an upright. But we figured out that Lyle's also playing electric bass here, which is not something... I mean, he always played upright bass in the studio, so... So Carol Kay is playing on the bottom. She's got the main part that Brian would have probably written it with. 
above that, Lyra Ritz is playing a harmony on the bass. Um, it's like a whole other separate bass line. And then above that is Bill Pittman on the um, first out Dana bass, which is just pretty much Carol's part, but an octave up and without the extra flourishes. He'd done things before, like Let Him Run Wild, and just wasn't there for these times where he'd have like a melodic bass part on the electric bass, and then the upright would be playing like, you know, just root notes and stuff. But then in Smile, he kind of started to move into, he didn't do it all the time, but, but sometimes he'd have different basses doing, you know, complementary different parts in the same range, like Child is Father of the Man, where he has three different bass lines going at once. He's got the, the arco, uh, the string bass just on one note, then that two different lines with the Dana bass and the electric bass. And it's the sort of thing that he'd been doing on guitar forever. Um, but I guess at this point he thought, you know, why not just do it the, the same with bass lines and put harmonies together there. So it's very, very interesting. That's basically the core of it, plus the, uh, plus the drums moving along. And then the strings here. So the, the high strings, the violins and the violas are just playing from one note on the bottom to one note on the top, smoothly going up to sound like a, uh, like a fire truck. What a bodacious spirit, what enterprise, what Yankee ingenuity came from Brian Wilson when he presented in uh, two hours' time those string parts that mystified people on the issue of fire. Fire didn't come out because it was burning down too many buildings. The string section was just sliding all over the place, and it was Brian's notation without a copyist that provided that ensemble I think I know. The violin's both doing the same note now. Uh, do it the other way, please. Uh, cross each other. Here we go. Same with their, all the violins. If, if any of the uh, violas do, do the you know, cross thing. Like, like a lot of Smile, it's just a two-chord vamp here. Um, the chords are just very dissonant sounding. And then the cellos here are doing something similar, but playing it really choppy and rhythmically. They're like moving the bow back and forth really hard on the cello. And then uh, last but not least, Gene Estes playing a triangle with one hand, a break drum with one hand, and then he's got a whistle in his mouth, so he's <laughs> working overtime there. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the original Nelson Bragg routine with <laughs> three things at once. Um, yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to see that. And what's what's he doing? What what exactly are the drums doing here as well? Is it just the floor tom? It's just it's floor tom and kick drum, just all four okay. beats. When then the fill at the end of, of each couple bars. And then cymbal too, very unbryant. Brian hadn't used a hi-hat or a cymbal or anything since like the early, you know, the end of Pet Sounds. Um, you know, the first version of Good Vibrations and some of that stuff, but for the entire Smile Sessions, like he never uses a cymbal, apart from in Fire and in I Want to Be Around and in that terrible version of Wonderful. Um, it's, it's all, it's, yeah, this is a, a rare exception where he has a big cymbal crash. Um, and it's just, the thing about this, this 
piece of music is it's just there are so many people in the psychedelic kind of era where they just improvise something in the studio and they just have as many instruments as they could doing dissonant things but with fire brian consciously wrote a piece of music it's a very deliberate piece of music that's kind of it's it's quite controlled and all the notes are doing exactly what he wants them to do and it's that's what sets it apart from every everybody else at this point is this was something he you know he wrote and he, he composed and he put together and he arranged it in a very deliberate way to to make the notes make you feel a certain way and evoke an image and it's incredible what he does with it you can you know it's everybody talks about it but you can listen to this and you just see a fire it's amazing all of a sudden the wheel in the trash barrel on fire uh, it was not conducive to breathing <laughs> don't worry it won't be on the record you know they won't hear it oh that's great the main take of the main section that brian selected isn't on the smile sessions in stereo because it was take two is the second take he did he went back to is the one that he wanted and the longest one on the smile sessions is take six which sounds a little bit different so brian kind of mixed down these sections he took take two which was the main vamp take nine which was that sort of instrument fade out round then take 18 which was the ending and he cut them together and then overdubbed um some burning wood sound effects in the studio which the janitor at gold star a guy called brother julius which i think phil Spector named a b-side after or something he was the one who brought in some burning wood in a in a trash can basically and they had it as ambience during the recording apparently you don't hear it anywhere but they supposedly had this bucket with smoke in the middle of the room um so everybody could smell it for <laughs> to get into it and obviously they're all wearing fire hats as well and then eventually brian recorded it as an overdub on top of it for the sound um and yeah that's fire <laughs> Down the street from the studio, there was a warehouse that burned down to the ground. It burned to the ground. And I thought I, it was my fault when we did fire tapes that day. I thought that the fire tapes, the songs that we, the, the music that we created about fire, I thought that was responsible for the building burning down to the ground. So the video that we kind of associate with this wasn't actually no, from no, this session, was, right? No, no, that was Beach Boys um, two days later. Um, so I guess they were just kind of in the same spirit because they all were wearing the helmets. But there's still yeah. tons of pictures. The pictures oh, yeah, of Brian shirtless of... Mm-hmm. with the fire hat is from this, <laughs> which weird. is funny to uh, listen to this right. session because he just sounds so on top of it and in control. And you just picture he him. He sounds so normal and controlled. And then you watch, you see the photos and it's like he's shirtless with a fire heart and diane's giving him a shoulder rub and it's like oh god (laughs) (laughs) back to jules siegel as it turns out however brian's magic fire music is not going to scare anybody because nobody other than the few people who heard it in the studio will ever get to listen to it a few days after the record was finished a building across the street from the studio burned down and according to brian there was also an unusually large number of fires in los angeles Afraid that his music might in fact turn out to be magic fire music, Wilson destroyed the master. I don't have to do a big scary fire like that, he later said. I can do a candle and it's still a fire. That would have been a really bad vibration to let out onto the world. That Chicago fire. The next one is going to be a candle. 
Well, it so happens that a building burned down the same day we were doing that, down the street of the studio that we were doing the fire tapes. I had the musicians wearing fire helmets. I had a guy bring in a bucket with burning wood to smell of smoke in the, in the studio. I mean, I was crazy. Anyway, I thought, I began to think that, that we started that fire somehow, mystically, and uh, we ended up destroying the tape. He hasn't really, and he hasn't really since written any music that's just put such a vivid picture in your mind. Like, he, he didn't make this to contain lyrics or anything. Um, he's actually trying to emulate different sounds um, with instruments. Like, he's actually using the violins to sound like some sort of fire truck or some alarm, and the basses sound, you know, extremely menacing here. Um, and then the ending with each bass kind of going off and doing its own thing, and then you're left with just the drums, like... It's just something that's so so vivid, so creative. It's it's hard to imagine how how he did this. Um and how he would have followed it up too. Yeah, this is the furthest he ever got out in terms of like, you know, something that is just on the edge you know, like if Pet Sounds was kind of pushing <laughs> what expect expectations of a Beach Boys album. And Smile's full of weird stuff, you know, Smile is full of things that do you like worms, for example, which is a just a bizarre song? But next to fire, it's like just imagine this on a Beach Boys album. It's and full breaks. It's full breaks is very similar, but even then, this is something else. Like this is just there's not there is no other piece of music like it that exists apart from full breaks and back to winter, I guess. Right. And speaking of fall breaks, um, we don't know if there were vocals planned for this, but the vocals on the smile sessions are just straight from fall breaks because. They're basically just in pretty much the bass line here, reharmonized. Yeah, and uh, that's, the, that's the thing with the elements. It's so, so many people try and, over the years, have tried to go, oh, maybe, the, maybe you know, the water element is love to say da-da, or, you know, air is the end of wind chimes and all that stuff, but it's, nothing is like, well, I mean, first of all, no, no they're not. <laughs> but it's on that level as well, it's like, the way, what Brian did with Fire, you kind of imagine that, any other parts of the elements would have done the same thing, you know. You listen to this and you just, you can just see a fire. You know, you would have been able to listen to water or air and just know what that they're about immediately. And you don't have to make any sort of mental jumps to get there. Um, and what he did with Four Breaks is really interesting because Four Breaks is basically a rewritten fire. I don't think it, it's not the candle that Brian talked about because it's not the elements anymore. It's its own song um, trying to do something different. But I. You know, you, I kind of get the feeling that maybe other parts of the element, it, the elements, if you recorded them, would have done something similar to Full Breaks, which is take that basic musical material and rewrite them. Just, you know, takes the bass line and turns it into vocals, and he takes that sort of ending riff um, at the end of each round and turns it into, kind of turns it into the bass line. It's similar. It goes, Full Breaks is like... It's, it's, it's kind of like the end of the, um, the end of each round where he goes... It's kind of like an adaptation of that, so, and the percussion is similar as well. So you kind of feel like if Brian was going to finish the elements, it would have been more pieces of music that directly relate to fire. It wouldn't be a complete tangent. It would have been one track that feels like a sort of symphony. Which is, it's, it's a little disappointing that he never got to finish this, but I mean, what we have here is such an amazing piece of piece of music. So do you think that um, when Brian kind of thought that his fire session 
sent off vibrations that started fires throughout LA. That was the end of the elements. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I think I, mean, I think that sense. discouraged him a lot. Yeah. It's, we're not really sure what he did, but it's I don't we don't mm. think he ever recorded we don't think he ever recorded anything after this that was directly the elements. Uh, but he did do things like, you know, like Cool Cool Water, which obviously came from that train of thought where making music about that particular type of thing. But it wasn't the elements anymore. It wasn't the specific track that would have been on the album in four parts, um, like any other song, really. So the following day, they're back at Gold Star with a with a relatively small group: Bill Pittman, Gene Estes, Lyle Ritz, Jim Gordon. Carol Kay. I'm interested in it to see what you guys think about this stuff because um, it always kind of threw me off as to what this was for. Like, is this for I'm in great shape or <laughs> yeah, is this I mean, for the elements? Like, what is this we're for? We're both still really confused because there's just, there's no like hard evidence as to what he planned to do with this, but it's just, it's, uh, the five musicians from the fire session, um, just the rhythm section, um, and basically they start off just the jazz thing is just them improvising on their own, uh, coming up with their own thing. And the tape box says that this went on for six minutes as well. We've only heard the end of it. I want to hear the full six minutes. <laughs> That's great. Oh, me too. Um, <laughs> There, there's two pieces of music here. I Want to Be Around, which is a cover of a jazz song, and Friday Night, which is its own thing. Um, and the AFM contract says, I'm in great shape. Yeah. It's also just so un-Brian and un-Beach Boys. Like, you, this does not sound at all like Smile. This is just straight-up jazz. I Want to Be Around, uh, take one. I, th- I mean, there's a, there's a strong case that it could have gone after fire at some point when Brian was recording it, and that was the plan. But if it was the Elements Part 2, he would have just called it the Elements Part 2, you know? So it's like he was doing this just for his own for his own benefit, you know? It's like its own kind of therapy session with everyone. Just to cool down after the fire, it was an idea he had that he brought it into the studio, and then it could have gone either way, where it could have gone after fire as kind of a standalone thing, or it could have been part of I'm in Great Shape, which he was thinking about already as maybe its own song in the album. But there's a thing, to get it out of the way, like, to set the record straight, Carol Kay's never claimed that this was supposed to go after fire. She's just talked about it, like, candidly, as more fire sessions, because, you know, she was there, and the impression she gives is just that this was the same group of musicians in this same studio the day afterwards, doing something that would follow it, because, you know, it's it, she never makes any claim about something Brian told her, she just talks about it because she was there, and... The way she experienced it was this was more this was more fire session stuff, and this was this was like Brian's rebuilding suite kind of thing. I kind of wish that Brian um, would have finished his version of "I Want to Be Around" in 1978 
that's just me, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I think that would have worked out really well. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a shame that, I, I mean, if, if it was going to come after fire, it would be really weird to have a lead vocal and I want to be around, wouldn't it? I mean, the obvious, th- <laughs> the obvious thing to do would be like Brian sing it with his blue Christmas voice. That would have been great, but I think Mike could have done it as well. I don't think, I, I don't yeah. think any of the other Beach Boys. It's, it's weird. And we don't know if there were going to be vocals on this or if it was just some instrumental cover. Uh, it's, it's weird that there's no melody though. Yeah, it's not. Um, it's not like the old Master Painter where there's a melody. There's, you know. So maybe, yeah, maybe a vocal. That one, we're sure, I, was just going to be an instrumental. Yeah, I think the best way to do this would be to have like a solo. You know, I've already like saxophone or a clarinet playing the melody. I think would have been good. Um, yeah, and then the next piece of music here is something that Brian has written himself called Friday Night, which is just a really weird like six bar vamp. Um, that seems to be like a fade out to I Want to Be Around um, which already is super short so don't know what's going on here Yeah, out of all these pieces here on this day, I love this one the most. I think it's great because not only is it a new original piece, but I really do think that it has a place in Smile. You know, they used it on the 2004 version. Yeah, yeah. and Brian Wilson presents Smile. They kind of have it as a transition into vegetables because, you know, I want to be around and then vegetable starts with, I'm going to be around my vegetables. Mm-hmm. But it seems like this is a fade out because it just carries on forever until he tells them yeah. to stop but it's it's so unsmile as well that's the thing i mean every smile so much a smile is based on two chords back and forth this is like because there's so many changes like it's it's a very very circular there's a lot of different moods it goes through and it's um just a really interesting piece of music it's still really jazzy because you it's it's vibes and uh like brushes on the drums yeah, it's Bill Pittman, on, Bill Pittman on, and uh, Gene Estes on a vibraphone together, like on, on both ends of it, playing the low notes and the high notes. And then Lyle Ritz is um, a string bass, like bowing it, so it's this low sort of drone throughout, and then there's the the snare drum with the brushes, and it's, it is like something that you get on Friends. Like it's, you know, like On You Home and, and the title track, um, it sounds so similar to. And it's just here in the middle of the smile, like this sort of New York jazz thing. <laughs> it's comes completely out of left field. Yeah. Among the other sessions around this time, it just really sticks out. It's so interesting. Such a weird place that Brian's mind was. So the whole idea with it following fire is this this um I mean the lyrics it evokes that I want to be around to pick I want to be around to pick up the pieces and then it goes into like the workshop where it's actually rebuilding and it's right. It seems like such a it seems like such a Brian musical joke to have this like cacophony of terrifying fire, fire music and then it cuts into like a jazz standard that's saying like I want to be around to pick up the pieces and then they start like putting the city back together again um, yeah and uh, you know at the session before it, it's called The Elements Part 1 Fire um, but there's a chance that he just maybe decided not to do a four part element suite anymore um, because there's there's some examples of him calling the songs uh, calling the song Mrs. O'Leary's Cow or Mrs. O'Leary's Fire. Yeah, Mrs. O'Leary's Cow was a title that was around all the way back then. Right, so that's maybe just he wanted to call it that and have it be its own thing. 
So yeah, like you were saying, there is an overdub of kind of bag of tricks again. We've got like power drill and a saw and hammer on metal, you know, just gave these musicians all a new role to play, if you will. And, uh, you know, really illustrates that rebuilding that we mentioned. And this was reused on, <laughs> of all things, um, the 2020 album version of Do It Again. So weird. I have no idea what the thought was there. There was no real reason for it. It's just because they were going through the smile tapes to see if there's anything that they could finish for 2020. And obviously they got right. prayer and they got cabin essence and they found this um, Friday night with the, the sound effects and thought, oh, we'll just put that on the album somewhere because why not? So were there ever really more elements written and planned at this point? He had ideas, but nothing that went on tape at the time as well. Um, um, Brian said that there was, that air was some, was some piano piece but I don't know if right. maybe it was just something he had written. Um, yeah, he was, or asked maybe he, was in, just, he was asked that in 1977. Yeah, so it could have just been an easy answer to a, a question he wouldn't remember, but... It wasn't going to be... The way they did it in 2000, you know, several f- fan theories in the 90s had this idea that it was going to be like a sidelong suite on the album, which consisted of, you know, Mrs. Leary's cow and then and the vegetables and wind chimes and stuff like that. But the elements was supposed to be a track. It wasn't supposed to be like a name for a suite of songs. It was a name for one track that consisted of four sections. Um, so, you know, it's, it's things like wind chimes. Wind chimes was kind of similar in its, its intent, kind of as just evoking kind of senses and stuff. But it was definitely, wind chimes was just a song. And there's this, the most popular one is that love to say Dada was the water element. You see this everywhere from books going back to the 70s. And I think that's just because um, when they were going through these tapes, like, you know, Carl or whatever would have made the connection, oh, hang on, this is just cool, cool water. And it was said on the tape box that it's called love to say Dada. So when, when people asked, he would be like, yeah, this, this is water. Um, but it's not, you know, would love to say Dada is a song about babies. <laughs> And it's completely separate from anything Brian was doing in late 66. It was months later. It was a very different, you know, its own structured song. But things like Cool Cool Water definitely came out of this elements idea. It was definitely from that train of thought and it evolved into other songs later. Um, And that that December track list has, you know, Vegetables as a song, Wind Chimes as a song, and then just The Elements as another song. Right. So when he when he wrote that like the other parts of the elements as much as we want this to be finished just weren't there weren't recorded this whole elements thing influenced even if it never got finished as a track on the album smile this whole train of thought this this inspiration that brian got from some sort of well what he considered kind of a religious experience with with uh his whole lsd episode and and Lake Arrowhead or Big Sur or wherever it was, it influenced his songwriting and production style in a really big way for the next several years. Like, even if the elements didn't get finished as a song on Smile, it turned into Cool Cool Water, it turned into Country Air, it turned into Wind Chimes on Smiley, and his whole kind of diamond head, his whole kind of production ethos, when he decided to start recording at home, it's all from that same 
pool of ideas, this organic feel to his music. And it's his entire musical style until around Sunflower, I think, was, was directly influenced by what he was trying to pull off here. It's just instead of being a song on his album, it became just the way he recorded music full stop. It was this kind of very organic, simple, connected to nature sort of sound. Um, so the element is everywhere in everything he did afterwards for, for a long time. That's the elements, guys. Very cool. Thank you guys for helping me out with that. What's next? More wonderful and more vegetables. Okay, okay. You never won't be smile. I'm stuck <laughs> here forever. <laughs> Thank you guys, as always. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right, see ya. Bye. Thanks to George Faulkner, Will Crera, 
John Brody, Will C., and all the patrons of the show. I want to dedicate this episode to my Uncle Rick, who passed away last week. He was one of the biggest Beach Boys fans I knew, and one of my true heroes. I used to burn CDs of this show for him, since he didn't have a computer. Some of you may have noticed that for the first couple years we were doing this podcast, I made sure the episodes didn't go past 80 minutes. Well, that's the reason why. I remember when I was first getting into the Beach Boys as a kid, and then one day he asked me if I ever heard the song Ding Dang, because it was one of his favorites, and he wished that more people appreciated Brian's work in the 70s. Well, I'm very sad but thankful that I had so much good memories with him. Hug your loved ones, be kind to each other, and please vote if you haven't already. Love and mercy to you and your friends tonight. Sail on, sailors. function let's say in order to live and be happy and to be able to to think clearly you've got to have first of all the elements you've got to have good air to breathe if you go out to palm springs you go up to santa barbara get away from the city for a few days you'll realize you wake up in the morning fresh everything's groovy you come back in los angeles boom there you go with another smog problem zap you're on your butt you don't want to do anything smog has actually been called a potential homicide effect it can make people actually want to go out and kill other people the way we can help is to make a record and more or less present the facts in some interesting manner not boring but in some way that people can retain these facts and to sort of set up in their minds a goal to get rid of this shit because i'll tell you something if it doesn't subside i'm going to call the cops uh let's play that back